Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. One of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs, today's guest ranked fourth with her husband on the latest Young Rich list with an estimated wealth of almost $800 million. She is... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Unstoppable. Their billion-dollar business, Envato, which began life in her parents' garage in Sydney, has been named one of the top 10 best places to work in Australia. She's turned her love of chocolate into a passionate social enterprise, and her latest venture, Milkshake, hopes to bring all the Instagrammers to the yard. Well, Cyan, welcome. How does a woman who starts life as a graphic designer go to the queen of startups and then end up being a chocolatier? I think just step-by-step making off-the-cuff decisions, quite honestly. I really don't think that at any point I um, I was able to see what was going to happen in two or three years' time and just went with my gut about what was interesting at any given moment. So you never had a plan? No, I've never had a plan. I still don't have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very iterative with me. I think if I thought it through to its logical conclusion, I would find it very stressful and I wouldn't quite know how I was going to get there. And instead, I just kind of play around with things and see what happens, quite honestly. Let's start at the beginning. Envato mm-hmm. was really the crystallisation of a startup mm-hmm. that was enormously successful. What is Envato? Envato is basically a digital marketplace where people buy and sell things that designers and developers use. So in all likelihood, if you've hired a, um, a designer or a developer to build your website, they've used a component from Envato in order to make their jobs easier. And there's people, about 10,000 people all over the world who make those things and then sell them on our platform. So we're like a curated eBay for designers and developers. Where did that idea come from? Um, My father's a photographer. So I was involved in that space. I was a graphic designer. um, So I was always surrounded by people in this industry growing up. And just when I became a graphic designer professionally, it was a time when microstock photography was becoming a thing. So you were going from an era when if you wanted a photograph, you needed to hire a photographer or you might need to purchase a stock photograph, but it would cost you thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars to this quite disruptive model, which was micro stock photography, which the whole idea was you might pay $10, but thousands and thousands of people might purchase it. And therefore it made, the argument was it made a bit of sense for the photographer. So it was extremely, extremely disruptive. 
And for traditional photographers, it was, um, it was a very stressful time. On top of that, there was, generally speaking, about 10% of each sale was going to photographers. As a creative, I felt that was fundamentally imbalanced. I really, really disliked that. At the same time, you know, I and my co-founder and husband, Collis, were playing around with these platforms, selling a few photographs, making some supplemental income. And we thought, well, you know, as designers, there are all these other things that we would like to be both buying and selling for our projects, which are not currently available, which could make sense from a microstock model. Like um, After Effects files, Flash files, video, audio, generic music, all sorts of things like that. We're not talking elevator music, are we? No, we're talking all sorts of things. They're used for, you know, ads and, um, and movie previews and um, anything you can imagine, really. The product's called Audio Jungle and it's used for all sorts of things. So we, you know, we, we just set about making this thing and we actually thought it would be a little side project that would facilitate us being able to travel. And the concept was that it would be really seller-focused and um, so it would kind of, rather than focusing on the customer, it would focus on the creative who was making the thing and would facilitate them to earn a livelihood. So our goal was that rather than 10% of each sale going to them, 80% of each sale would go to them. What was the reality? Uh, we got there eventually. So we're there now, but at first we couldn't make the business work. So every time we could financially, we increased it by 5 to 10% until we got there. But it took probably about six or seven years to get there. That must feel pretty good. I'm, look, I, I really, I think the, the longer I've worked and the longer I've been in business, the more I've come to really believe that when business is done right, it kind of, it, it supports communities as opposed to just supporting shareholders. So I think the fact that I believe we were able to shift the industry and apply pressure to our competitors because we were doing this, I, I do feel like there's, there's real value in that. And hearing the stories of these people around the world who are able you know, I love doing creative work. They're able to do creative work on their own terms, you know, all around the world. And get adequate recompense. Yes. Yeah. People often say to me in business, it's got to be a win-win. Sounds like mm. that's been the debrief for Envato, a win-win for the creative. I, you guys get a clip, you know, you've got to make money, but it was your idea, but it facilitated a win-win for everyone. Yes. I think that was the whole idea. That, you know, when, when it's done right, every party rises in the transaction. And that, I think that always has to be the intention because the model, the purely revenue profit driven model that we have right now with traditional business is just fundamentally broken. And I think responsible for a huge amount of, you know, what's going wrong in the world. You said you were highly disruptive. What kind of flat and pushback did you get? I, I think it, it's funny because we had this long period of time we were almost trying to educate the customer that we existed and that they wanted what we had to offer. And then suddenly it just flipped over. The really interesting thing was is that no competitor came to get us for a really long time. They just didn't realise. We were playing in different spaces for them and I don't think they understood kind of how much revenue potential there was in these other areas outside of photography. So it was like there was absolutely nothing for a very long time and all of a sudden everyone else realised. But by then, we were first to market and quite established in all these other verticals, stock video, audio, all these other areas that I mentioned. So then it was quite hard for them to actually come after us in a meaningful way, which again was very lucky. Like we're still bootstrapped. And a lot of that is down to the fact that nobody came after us for a long time. What do you mean by bootstrapped? I hear that term used quite a lot. Bootstrapped means we haven't taken any external investment. 
we basically, we got into debt ourselves. We, um, you backed was, yourselves. Yeah, we backed ourselves, but not in the most intelligent way. Like we, we, um, <laughs> we maxed out our credit cards and we lived in my parents' basement. We borrowed money from my husband's parents. Like don't max out your credit card when you're trying to start a business. <laughs> it's not a smart thing to do. Good advice from the Queen. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but that's actually what, you know, what we did. And then it started making money, a little bit of money. We were still taking freelance design projects like maniacs to try and pay the bills. And then eventually it ticked over and we took a really small salary and we pumped money back in and we just iteratively grew it. So we didn't need to take any external investment, which has meant that we've been able to do a lot of things which were around long-term plays and doing things which were important to us as opposed to something that external shareholders wanted us to do in order to get a return. You can have a dream and hope it's going to be successful, but when it's a reality from a startup to all of a sudden employing three, four, five, now 800-odd staff, what's the biggest part of that learning curve for you? I think for me, honestly, it was learning where I can add value and where I'm just slowing people down. It was learning who I needed to work closely with and who I needed to have in my team to balance me out so that I could do what I'm good at and I was supporting them to do what they were good at and that I didn't need to be the person who had all the answers. What I needed to get really good at was forming a really strong holistic team around me. A lot of really successful people, men and women, admit the imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. lurked Mm -hmm. and loitered in their brain and nearly derailed them. Mm. Did it for you? I think it was my own worst enemy for quite some time. I think it slowed me down is what I'd say. It definitely slowed me down. And I think it's only, it's only human. You know, I think I had this idea in my mind for a long time that when the big players came, that they would know much better than I did. And I was just figuring it out and they wouldn't be, they knew. And I think as I've gotten older, I've realised that nobody actually knows everybody's, you know, every time you're doing hard things, everyone's figuring it out as they go along. So that's been quite freeing. But again, I think also realising that I don't need to be good at everything. I can be good at a few things and support others to, you know, hopefully exceed me in the future, but that's okay as well. Those have been really helpful learnings along the way, but I think until I realised that, I just, I slowed myself down because I wouldn't ask questions because I didn't want anyone to know the things that I didn't know. Does that make sense? I had to. It does when you think about the imposter syndrome because we like to think, you know, if we're, if we're passionate about something, we're across the detail. But mm. you worked out upon deep reflection what you weren't good at. And that was really, that was way more important to me than working out what I was good at. It freed me up actually to work out what I was good at. And then how to adjust. You fill the holes. You figure out smart ways to get around where you're genuinely weak. And hire those right people. Yes, absolutely. How would you describe Imbato now? Is it pretty much hands off? It can run itself? It's pretty hands-off. It's got, there's a really, really, really fantastic team and they do a great job. You know, I get consulted on like the really tricky things and generally the areas that I'm good at are the startups, people, people and culture staff, tricky people and culture questions, which always come up. But it's, it's a group of incredibly capable people. And I find sometimes if I try and get too involved in the details, I've got so many different things going on, I just end up as a traffic jam. So the best way that I can support everybody is to be there when they need me, but otherwise trust them to do what, to do what they're good at doing. 
You are kind of an ideas factory. You've got startup concepts coming out of your, you know, every orifice, really. <laughs> um, we'll get to Hey Tiger in a minute, but I, I love Milkshake. Tell me about Milkshake. Basically, it's a really simple web builder from your phone and it's via Instagram. What I kept on coming across was these incredible entrepreneurs who were running businesses or, you know, had incredible social profiles on Instagram or, you know, sometimes on other platforms, but they didn't have a solid web presence behind them because nothing was really buildable on your phone, which amazed me. Nothing was kind of an elegant, easy solution that you could build on your phone in five, ten minutes. I think you think you've got to find the experts and it's going to cost a fortune. So you've made Mm. this an affordable option for building a website on your phone. It's completely free. So it's, it's free. It's completely Why free. Why is it free? You're an entrepreneur. <laughs> Eventually when it scales, there will be options that will require a subscription, I'd imagine. But I think it needs to, there's probably about 10,000 people using it at the moment. I think it's going to need to get to 500,000 before we'd start to look at that and start to look at functionality, for instance, if they wanted to sell something through there or something like that. For now, And we've got the luxury of the fact that, you know, Invato's behind it and Invato can kind of carry a startup like this to get to that scale and just go, okay, let's get bums on seats and see what comes from it and really try and genuinely solve a problem. So we wouldn't be able to do that if this was our first startup. We would need to be charging for it. But we take a bit of an incubator, experimental approach to these things and it's a good idea and we just wanted to see if it would take and people would like it. And so far it seems to be solving a problem for people, which is great. How did you discover that there was a gap in the Instagram website space? Well, actually it was through Hey Tiger. So, you know, Hey Tiger, social enterprise chocolate company, and it's a very visual brand. And by virtue of that, there was all these unboxings on Instagram. And, what do you um, mean by unboxing? Unboxings. So there would be like an influencer, somebody with a very large social media following, a very large Instagram following, would receive a box of Hey Tiger, which looks very pretty in my biased opinion, and um, they would open it up and they'd open it up on camera and say, look what I've gotten. And we would get a six times multiplier in sales overnight and any, everybody would be running around like headless chickens trying to fulfill orders. And it really got me looking at these influencers in a new way, just how kind of incredibly powerful they were and how sophisticated what they were doing was. I think there's this thing around, oh, well, it's just pretty women. It is not, that is not what it is, you know. Well, what is it? Well, look, if you consider, if you try, because I've, I've actually tried this just out of interest. To be an influencer? No, I haven't tried to be an influencer, but if you try to take a curated photo of yourself in a particular location doing a particular thing and then communicating in a way which feels natural, resonates with your audience, that people like you, that it's really engaging, and you try and do that every single day and build up an aesthetic which is, you know, clearly your visual brand and a personality and a persona and and let people into your life, that is incredibly complex to do in an authentic way. They need to be art directors, stylists, photographers, models, incredible communicators, marketers, you know, And it's not an easy job and it takes an incredible skill set and incredible sophistication. So I think I was watching these women and really like my respect was growing over time, just thinking, boy, what you are doing is hard and it's very sophisticated and yet they wouldn't have a web presence. And you'd talk to them and they'd say, oh, it's just because nothing, I can't do anything on my phone. So maybe, you know, I built something with Squarespace or Wix three years ago, but it wasn't quite what I wanted and then then I'm never on my desktop. 
and I just I just can't update it, so I don't use it. So I, we thought, well, let's make something which they can use. I can't think of the name of the person on Instagram that came across my timeline, but they were in travel and photography mm-hmm. and clearly fashion, and they as a couple are quite extraordinary. And up until recently, I thought and believed influencers were getting a bad rap mm-hmm. fairly. I'm now starting to realise perhaps unfairly. I think, look, I think with anything you can look at it in a bunch of different angles and I think you can see a a lot of stories where you go, all right, this is a little bit inauthentic or potentially a little bit icky, but there's also... Too commercial. Yes, too commercial, but there's also people that are genuinely, it's like like editorial. It's like a a new platform for editorial. They're creating something which is very interesting and it's hard for me to even define, but it's, um, you know, I think it's a reality and I think it's an interesting thing to watch and have appropriate respect for because it has incredible power. So why call it Milkshake? I call things strange names all the time, quite honestly. Like, why did I call? <laughs> I mean, I always think, like, my, my branding journey has taken a, you know, long time. The first thing that we ever launched was called Flash Den. It sounds like a porn site. It was terrible. It does in hindsight. It does in hindsight. <laughs> I did not realise this at the time until I went to the bank with a cheque and then she looked at me like, what is this business? But with Milkshake, I think the first iteration was this idea that you'd be able to put your content in so just quite simple content and then you'd be able to shake your phone and every time you shaked it would just have a new design, a new design behind it. So rather than needing to commit to a design, so usually with other platforms you need to commit to a design, then you need to put your content in then you're kind of married to it. And we like the idea that you could just almost like... Um, shake your content and the yeah. cream rises to the top. Yeah, and you or just the flick newest. through or shake through and, and an aesthetic that really speaks to you comes up organically and that it's a more intuitive, fun, light experience. The whole team liked the name Milkshake because of that, and I, I kind of tend to think that if something resonates and it's fun, then, you know, why not just go for it? So Envato was launched 2006. Mm-hmm. Then 11 years later, mm-hmm. you launch Hey Tiger. Mm-hmm. What's the story behind Hey Tiger? So Hey Tiger is a chocolate social enterprise. And I launched it, I, I knew I'd wanted to do a, a social enterprise for quite some time. And I was very busy with Invato and I was still very operational and in it and working hard. And I had two young kids. And then I got this eye injury. I got a, uh, a bacterial ulcer on my cornea. Basically, I was in a dark room for about a, a month. month. Mm. Yep. Everyone I know that's had a really heavy eye infection means that they're they have to lie flat for a month. Yes, and I had to put these special antibiotics in my eye every hour, 24 hours a day for about two weeks. So I became completely um, spaced out. It was really bizarre. You go from running full pelt, really focused with work, family, busy, to suddenly you're doing nothing, you're in a little bit of pain, so you're not quite with it, and you're very, very sleep deprived. It's a great opportunity to really reflect what a on, um, quick way to detox. Exactly, exactly. From, from all the devices. Yeah. I, well, yeah, there's nothing you can do. The only thing you can really do is, is sit there and think. And I came out the other side of that and I thought, well, I've wanted to do a social enterprise for a few years now. I don't think Invato genuinely needs me anymore. Like I tend to be good early stages of a startup is where I think I'm really Get good and, and add running. value. Yeah. Mm. And then as it gets bigger and it scales, it's just it's not my, it's not my bag as much. Does your husband get lumber with that? Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's a what bit, he's good but at. But a great team. No, and he's <laughs> and he's incredible at it. Yeah, I'm very very lucky to very lucky to have him. We make a good team. But I just sort of thought, well, if I want to do it, 
you know, they said that I might lose my eye during this thing, which is always a good, you know, every time you get a little bit of the, one of those life is potentially short jolts, like do the things, you go, all right, well, I'll just have a crack at it. So you love chocolate. I love chocolate. I think chocolate's amazing and it makes people very happy. Like you say you have chocolate and people are so happy. I reckon chocolate's a lot like a puppy. Yes. It's just something innate that makes you smile. I know. It's just pure. Like yeah. it's, it's delightful. Pure joy. Yes. And I kept thinking this is impractical, you know, nothing about food production, you, you know, like this is so off kilter. And it sounds really kind of hippy dippy, but my dad, when I was growing up, would always say, you know, like the universe will take care of you. Just follow the signs and follow along with where things seem to be taking you. And everything just kept coming back to chocolate. So I started just by at the end of my workday every day, I'd come home and I'd make chocolate in the kitchen for a couple of hours. And then I eventually got people to taste test it and tried to do blind testing and A-B testing and that all seemed to go well and I thought, stuff it, I'll just go for it and see what happens, which was terrifying, but it's worked out. So I didn't realise you were making the chocolate as well. I thought you came up with a concept that would be appealing and Mm. also have a social equity element, Mm. but you're actually making the chocolate as well. Well, I'm not making the chocolate anymore, to be clear. My skill set has completely been surpassed, but I wanted to be a chef when I was growing up. And I already knew how to make chocolate. And so I I had these, I kind of knew in my head what I wanted the brand to be like. And I knew I wanted it to be flavours that we weren't currently seeing. But I thought the best way to figure that out is just to get into the kitchen and try it and then get people to taste it. And at first it wasn't that great. And then it got a little bit better. And then eventually I thought, all right, I got my assistant to buy a bunch of different chocolate from other competitors, take it all out of its packaging, and then my chocolate. And then she told some of the people at Envato that she was doing blind taste testing for corporate gifting. They all thought she was nuts. And then she took them into this meeting room and she got them to try all these different chocolates. And she went, what do you think of the mouthfeel of this one? And what about the flavour of this one? So they thought it was fun, but absolutely bizarre. But at the end of it, the chocolate that I was making came out on top and I thought, great, I've got enough data to proceed. So it was really was that basic to begin with. But your real point of difference with Hey Tiger is the flavours that you combine and the packaging mm. and your price point. Walk us through the three of those. So the flavours really, I think when I first started working with our team of chocolatiers, chocolatiers tend to be very traditional. So that's why generally you won't see unusual flavour profiles very frequently. So we started by pulling out those kind of um, limitations by going, all right, if we didn't need to have a three-year shelf life but a nine-month shelf life, what could we do then? What flavours could we put in that we wouldn't be able to otherwise? If we started making inclusions on site, so we got a patisserie chef and we got our own, you know, freeze dryer and we did those things ourselves and we went really artisanal, what is it that it would be possible for us to do? So what are your best flavours? We just launched, we just had a collaboration with, and this is going to sound really weird, an Instagram celebrity dog called Tofu Dog. And I was really critical about this. I was like, this is a really cute dog, but I don't know, like I'm not sure about this. And uh, head of brand, Mirta, you know, I'm a big believer in trusting your team. If, you know, they're the experts, they know what they're going to do. She was like, nah, side. this is going to be amazing. They've got, he's got this huge following in Japan. It's going to be incredible. So we did this huge run of this dog themed creme brulee and um, it's a creme brulee and black sesame. And it's kind of a beautiful white chocolate bar. It's really delicious, kind of subtle Asian flavours. It's sold out within 24 hours. We put a pre-order up. That sold out within another 12 hours. We just couldn't keep up. It went nuts. So that's honestly an example of a time when if I'd called it, I would have gotten wrong and my somebody I trusted was absolutely right. 
Our most popular flavours, um, we have a freeze-dried raspberry milk chocolate, which has kind of a dark cocoa crumb through it, which is my personal favourite. We have caramelised popcorn and coconut. We smoke a dark chocolate and we put whiskey through it. We just released for Father's Day a dark trout, not trout, I don't <laughs> think people would like that, a dark stout toffee with chilli in milk that people love. But we have about 30 flavours at the moment and we've got another 10 coming out before the end of the year. And The shelves are flooded with chocolate. Mm. What makes yours stand out? I think it's the packaging and the sizing. Mm, it doesn't the, look traditional. I mean, that's what drew me in. Mm. I went over and picked it up and thought, what is this? Oh, thank you. Look, it's very unusual. And I think that we really did go brand first. And I think Emily Weiss, who started Glossier, said, I want to create a brand that you want to wear on your T-shirt. And I think that's really what I wanted to do as well. I wanted to create a brand which was incredibly celebratory and fun and visual and, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek. But under the hood was a social enterprise. Because I think that's a really interesting concept. I like the concept of having a business that people fall in love with because of the quality of the product and the visuals of it and the brand. And then they find out that it's also just a big experiment in how to run a business if it's purpose-driven as opposed to profit-driven. So it's another win-win. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I think another really interesting element of Hey Tiger, yes, it's got the social equity element. But it's the commercial collaborations that you Mm. can piggyback on. Mm. So, I mean, how does that work in the commercial space? So we do custom flavours for different brands. So the most successful one that we did was for GoTo Skincare, Zoe Foster Blake, basically created her own chocolate bar in collaboration with our chocolatiers. We tend to look for like-minded brands, brands that we're genuinely excited to work with. So we won't do it if it's not on brand for us. We guard the brand very closely. But, you know, that's a lot of fun and sometimes it's more commercial because there's the scale and sometimes it's just because we're just really excited to work with the brand. So how do the funds divvy up? How is it a win-win for the social enterprise? So, And where does the money go? Hey Tiger is still not yet profitable and we've got a team of 19 now. I'm still partly funding it and it's just less and less every month, which is great. So it's growing quite quickly. But chocolate, it has small margins, particularly us. So we source to the highest ethical standards. So generally the cost of our product is about five times of our competitors. So it is far more expensive. We're transitioning everywhere we can to full eco packaging, which is more expensive again. So again, our um, COGS, our cost of goods is just higher. But because we do source ethically, farmers are getting paid really fairly for the cocoa that we end up purchasing through the sort of companies that we work with. So where does Um, the money go? 25 cents from every mini bar and 50 cents from every full-size bar go directly to the Hunger Project to their, that there's an area of Ghana, an epicenter called the Ekimanhai. I'm always worried I'm mispronouncing that area. And that has a very high, more than 50% cocoa farming communities in there. And basically from one of the reasons why I wanted to start Hey Tiger is because the general consensus amongst experts now is that, you know, there's 2.2 million children in child labor. And the average cocoa farmer in West Africa earns 73 cents per day. And that doesn't seem to be getting any better. There's no real change with that. And um, despite the fact that the cocoa industry is trying to make change, and the issue seems to be that everything, there's all these really complex systemic issues that are tied in with this. There's things like HIV, AIDS. 
sanitation, water, mm-hmm. everything you can imagine. Hunger Project do a lot of really amazing stuff, but you've been specific in targeting where the funds from Hay Tiger go to. So mm-hmm. it goes back directly to those that are involved in the process of making chocolate. Yes, that's correct. And I think, you know, we want to do more and more of that. So my hope is that when we're profitable every time we declare a dividend, so we are owned by a charitable trust, I don't take a salary. So anytime we are in a position to declare a dividend, it will go directly to our charitable partners as well. So my hope is that as we scale, we can make more and more positive, holistic change. Hey, Tigers, Australian-based? Yes. Your orders are domestic? Um, National? Well, the interesting thing about this most recent campaign with Tofu-chan, the dog, is that um, we suddenly opened up into Japan. We got a flood of Japanese customers out of it. So it's it's very interesting. So we are at a stage where we're getting international orders, which is interesting. Well, and exciting. Very, very exciting. Very, very exciting. What's the timeline you've given Hey Tiger to be profitable? Right now, it looks like we're going to reach profitability by early next year. So that is, that's what we're shooting for. And I've got these incredibly hardworking people back at Hey Tiger who are just giving it everything they've got. They really, really are. They're putting their, you know, heart and soul into it. So I'm tremendously grateful to them. They just absolutely live it. So give me the elevator pitch. If someone's Mm -hmm. listening today and they think, what a great idea, I'd love to be involved. How can I get on to Hey Tiger and incorporate it in something I'm doing? There's, there's a lot of stores that are stocking Hey Tiger now, so even just picking it up and trying it, you can buy it online. And you can tailor the packaging so that it reflects the corporate collaboration? You can absolutely tailor. Yeah, we tailor the packaging quite frequently, so we do a lot of custom packaging, some custom flavours, and uh, we've gotten quite good at doing that in a way that makes sense. For the brand? Yes, that's quite an elegant solution for the customer as well. Here's another quirky name though, Hey Tiger. How did you come up with that one? I really like it when people take risks and people decide they're going to be a little bit quirky and go for it. And I tend to say when they, when somebody comes and, you know, especially people that are working for me come and say, I'm going to try this, I go, oh, hey Tiger, go for it. And um, So it was a catchphrase of yours? Yeah, it was just a weird thing that I always said. And I think with this, I was actually terrified. I was worried that it was going to be, it wouldn't resonate with people because it has such a strong perspective. And I just wasn't sure if it was going to take. And so I really did view it as a massive, a massive personal risk. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll call it something to reflect that, to reflect that this is a bit of a, well, you know, let's just put something out into the world and see if people like it. Embato's an established success. Hey, Tiger is on its way. Milkshake has, um, well, there's liftoff. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that goes. But in 2019, you make the AFR rich list. What was that like? I can't internalise it because if Invato was listed or if we'd taken funding, I guess there would be confirmation from the market that this is what Invato is valued at. Whereas in this case, it's an estimate based on calculations that I'm not sure what they are from the AFR, which I'm, thought, which I'm sure are very well thought out. But it's, it's a completely arbitrary number that doesn't have really anything to do with how I live my life or what day-to-day looks like. So it's one of those things that you go, oh, that's really interesting. What a surreal situation to be in. (laughs) And wow, I'm pretty lucky that I'm the one in however many people who get to, you know, experience running a business of this scale. But other than that, quite honestly, the only thing I think it really makes me think, and I know this sounds cliched, but there's that quote to those that a lot is given, a lot is expected. And I always think of that. I always think, all right, well, you've won the, like the jackpot of life, really. You better make sure that you're kind of 
being useful. So it's not just an accolade, but it could be a burden. It's a responsibility. I perceive it as, for whatever reason, an extra level of trust that I've been given and I need to do my level best to do a good job of it. I need to make Invato a great place for people to work and a place that does good and I need to do things like Hey Tiger and I need to just kind of, I need to contribute in a meaningful way. Where did this ethical integrity thread come from, do you think? Because it's ever-present in everything you do. So when I was in school, I won. I didn't win anything else. Like I never won the, you know, the, the smartest student or anything like that. But I always won the religious education prize, which my parents who were atheists were always like, why? <laughs> like, what is going on with you? But it's because we had this incredible minister at school, Dr. Lawton. And he did, uh, his church was in King's Cross. And I remember him talking to the parents one day and I went to um, my parents, even though they couldn't really afford it, I couldn't read. So they put me into Skeggs, which was a fantastic education. They put me into Skeggs when I was in grade two, because I just could not read a word out of desperation. And it all worked out. It was a great school. But I remember Dr. Lawton talking to these parents who were pretty, you know, well-to-do, successful people saying, what you all need to understand is that you all lead pretty dull and boring lives compared to my flock, compared to my congregation. And at one point he even said, you know, I don't know if Christ was even real, but what I do know is that his teachings help us to help the other humans. And that is, you've had this incredible privilege of having this education and you need to live up to it. You need to do, to do useful things because you have had this privilege. And I don't know why, it always really spoke to me. And I think that when we don't consider privilege, if people like me don't consider privilege, then we don't give back in an adequate way. A really profound bearing on who you are and, you know, how you grew up and the consciousness that you bring to being Scientide. But (laughs) also another big element in your early childhood was your grandmother. Mm. So my grandmother was Lavina Purdy and she was an absolute force of nature. She had two children. She back in like the 1920s, she got divorced. She had no money. Um, her husband ran off and she decided that she was going to start a, a deli. So somehow by the skin of her teeth, she set up this deli doing whatever it took. From there, she had a, a cookie factory and a boarding house. And eventually she became this incredible builder. And she moved up to Queensland. As you do. Yes, exactly. There's a natural trajectory through that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. She just did all sorts of things and just always by the seat of her pants went, all right, what about this? So very, very entrepreneurially minded at a time when that really didn't happen for women. And um, How does an older woman in the 50s in Brisbane become a builder? I know. She had no skill set, but what she had an idea and a context and she, she was very smart. And what she decided was that her differentiator was going to be that all the other builders were men and they built houses for the men and she was going to build houses for the wives because the wives were the ones that actually made the decision. And so she became a very successful builder. And, you know, she'd do things like she's 80 years old, she's still wearing high heels and suits and she's carrying, you know, these bags of cement and talking to these builders. She was unbelievable. So I think it really did give me this incredible example of a woman who didn't let anything get in her way and kind of almost created her own reality around herself. She never saw if there was anything going against her. She didn't even see it. She just bulldozed straight through it. She was unbelievable. Unbelievably focused. Yes. Yeah. Is your mum like that? Well, my mum was a very successful um, swimwear designer in New York. She grew up in France, left Paris when she was um, 18, 
moved to London to go to St. Martin's, didn't speak any English, learnt English on the fly, and then eventually moved to New York and became um, a very successful designer and had a couple of covers on um, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and partied in Studio 64 and was friends with Bob Dylan. It was just super cool. My parents are so much cooler than me. I was this dweeby little kid and they were super cool. Uh, So my mum was, you know, incredibly talented, incredible eye. My mum is the most loving person that you could possibly imagine. She's gentle but very kind of bright and sharp and gives me incredible advice. Have you got siblings? No, I'm an only child. Mm, So my parents could only have me. (laughs) What do you think is the best advice to give to others who dream of a startup and making a success of it? I generally tell people just to start fiddling around, which I know sounds a bit weird, but I come across a lot of people who say, okay, well, I'm building up my savings and then in five years' time I'm going to quit my job and then I'm going to do this startup and I'm going to pump everything into it. And I have had so many businesses that have, like so many startups within Envato and a couple outside of Envato that have failed. And because I didn't invest everything in them, I could go, okay, this is, I've got really clear metrics for success. This isn't taking. I'm shutting it down. I'm moving on to the next thing. And I kind of approach it as like fiddling around. And I do think you build up your capacity and your knowledge and your context over time. But, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs I know just started out doing, tr- trying to fix a problem that they had on the side, genuinely trying to solve a problem or something that bothered them or something they'd like to see in the world. And I think that doesn't necessarily take, at least at least in order to figure out whether it has legs, a first step of figuring out whether it has legs, you don't need to bet the farm most of the time. And just putting stuff out into the world and getting used to getting comfortable with it, failing, people not liking it, people wanting you to change it, and making it less about you and more about the idea and whether the idea has legs or not, I think that's something that you can start really early. I started when I was 19 started trying to put together businesses. You've mentioned a few times you have metrics mm-hmm. and uh, it reaches a point of, uh, you know, success or failure mm. or continuance. Mm. How brutal are you about those metrics when you're applying it to a startup? I am extremely brutal until I have employees. So basically I'm trying to test everything I can with the resources that I have available because I don't want to bring anyone on if I don't have a job for them at the end of the day because you're often asking really good people to bet on you and that's a big responsibility. But until then, as long as there's nobody, no skin in the game in terms of people's livelihoods, I'm pretty brutal. So I've shut multiple things down over the years after a couple of months because I've gone, I just don't think this has got legs. Must be hard to let go of a dream though. Some of those startups must have been personal passion project. I think that if I had to let go of Hey Tiger now, that would be brutal. I would really, really, really struggle with that. But I think until I feel like it's got genuine legs, I tend to be fairly detached and I try and be quite clinical about it because I'm, I finally internalised this idea that It's the idea, it's not me. And there's many things that can impact the success of an idea that aren't to do with you and whether you're successful or not. It's to do with the market. And I think I've seen a huge number of startups that are incredible ideas, founders that are way smarter than me. And for whatever reason, the market just isn't with them. What do you wish you knew then that you know now? I think I wish I knew then. It's going to sound really weird and vulnerable, but I wish I knew then that it was okay to be me. (laughs) which is a very like intense thing to say. But I think for a long time, I felt like I needed to be different. I needed to be a different sort of leader. I needed to sort of behave in a different way. I needed to have a different 
skill set and I think I realised it took me a long time to go, no, actually, I... um. It's, it's okay to be myself. And I must say, my husband's been fantastic. For years, all he said to me was, it's okay to be yourself. Just be yourself. But I think for a long time, I thought I needed to fit a certain mould. I wonder if it parallels with everyone that suffers the imposter syndrome. Mm. But what I do notice with all the women that I speak to is that they naturally blossom internally, emotionally along the way. You just had this really beautiful, vulnerable moment when you sort of said, hey, I've worked out. Mm. It's okay to be me. Mm. And you're really in a really nice place with that. I am. Yeah, it's, it's nice. I actually think getting old is fantastic. I really think it's so <laughs> – I know that people downplay it, but I think it's um, – Because I you start to grow into your skin, don't you? And you start to just not give as much of a crap anymore. You just go, you know what, it is what it is. I am who I am. That's okay. I'm just going to enjoy this. Well, we love going on your ride, Cyan Taid. Just fabulous woman, fabulous work. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. 